I had the aspiration before there was such a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I happened to read a piece on January 21st, 1980 by Neil Postman in the Nation magazine. Uh, and it said at the bottom, Neil Postman is a professor of media ecology at NYU. Mm-hmm. I loved the piece and I read this bio and I said, media ecology, that makes perfect sense to me. I, If I go to New York and I study with this guy, he'll be able to show me kind of like what I'm trying to do. And that's exactly what happened. What were you trying to do? I wanted to write about media. Yeah. I, wa- I wanted to express myself and find whatever talents I had through interpreting that experience because you know I grew up in a family with not a lot of adult supervision mm-hmm. and so I was in a sense like many other people of my age raised by a television set and I think part of that becoming a media critic was that it was like interpreting my experience but anyway Neil Postman was a very successful media critic even though he had a strange background as a initially as an English teacher and then a professor of English education who was very influenced by Marshall McLuhan. Mm-hmm. And then he created this incredibly quirky graduate program at NYU called Media Ecology that I ended up studying with, which was sort of the history of communications technology yeah. from speech to writing to print to telegraph to telephone to radio, TV – all the way up through computer. What does ecology mean in that context? Or is it just it one means, of those like fun little words that... It, it sort of means like studying the media environment and how that shapes culture and society. Mm. I didn't know it at the time, but it turned out to be a great thing to study yeah. <laughs> in the 1980s because nobody could see the internet coming. But when it did, I was kind of intellectually prepared for it, even though I'm not a technology person. I'm not a geek in any way. So I was very fortunate to study with him because he... He was a successful media critic, and he was also an academic who spoke in a public language to a lot of people who were not specialists or academics. And he had an audience around the world, and he had all these speaking engagements. And I was able to hang around him for four or five years and literally like go to talks with him and accompany with him, him on trips and just sort of see how he operated. That was very valuable for me. Do you feel, given that training that you had, that you were able to see some of what is happening now bubbling up to the surface? I feel intellectually it was very valuable for me to have in graduate school to think, all right, so what is life like when you only have the spoken word? How does it change when writing Mm -hmm. enters the picture? What was disrupted by the printing press in the 16th century? What happens when information begins to move at the speed of electricity with the telegraph in the middle of the 19th century? Photography, how does that change the world? Broadcasting, you know. So having studied that in graduate school turned out to be an advantage that I didn't anticipate because I didn't see technological disruption coming to the press because when I was in graduate school, the journalism world was in the midst of a very long period of stability in its practices and in the underlying media system that gave life to it. We didn't know that at the time because we just thought that was the media business, but turned out to be very useful, more useful than I thought it was going to be. 
I became a professional writer, the exact opposite <laughs> of the axe swinging. I moved out here because I got a couple of internships and I am old enough to remember a point where in when I first started writing, it felt like a bit of a failure to have something that you wrote go online and not make it into the print side. Oh, yeah. yeah like sure. this is like, yeah, I remember that. I yeah. had an internship at Spin Magazine and it's like all the, the all the throwaway that. stuff. It's yeah. not good enough for the column space. So all the extra junk is just going to get yeah. sent out on the Internet. Yeah, sure. I remember that. That's funny because I sort of had the opposite view. Of, like I wanted things to be online. I thought that was more exciting. Yeah. Well, part, part of the reason to back up a second, I wrote my dissertation in 1986, and it's about the concept of the public as the thing that journalism is supposed to inform. So my dissertation is sort of a history of the idea of the public as the uh, the body on the receiving end of journalism. And I traced that, that idea through the centuries. And so as a result, I was always very interested in participation in the press by the public. Because if there's no public, journalism doesn't really matter all that much. So like a great example would be music journalism. If you're lucky enough to be a music journalist in a city with a vibrant music scene, you have a much more interesting life than if you are reviewing albums where there is no music world. Mm -hmm. So when you have music clubs, when you have people going to live music, when you have people who care about music, when you have a lot of music record stores and, and fan groups, then you have a much more vibrant context in which to practice music journalism. Mm -hmm. So I've always been interested in that relationship between participation by the public and journalism. And so the birth of the internet was a kind of rebirth for that subject. The because, sense that maybe the walls are breaking down. Yeah, in a way. because people people could participate yeah. in in all these different ways. And so like I remember 1996 or so, I think it was 1986, got a call in my office from an editor at Salon Magazine, which I knew nothing about at that time, which is one of the first internet magazines, yeah. like digital-born magazines. I remember Slate being the same yeah, thing. Yeah, Slate and Salon, yeah. are, they belong to the same yeah. generation. And uh, this editor, Andrew Ross, asked me if I wanted to write for this new thing, this new internet magazine called Salon. I said, well, what's an internet magazine? Like, I didn't really understand <laughs> what it was and what's Salon? And, and he told me. So I did check it out. And I remember looking at it. And the thing that really interested me was that they had comments after the articles. And the comments were um, produced on this software, which I'm sure is a, is a relic now. Nobody would remember it, called Web Crossing. Mm -hmm. But they looked as good as the magazine, like in a production values sense. They were as... They weren't ghettoized. Yeah, they weren't ghettoized. They were as finished yeah. as the articles. And I said, that's interesting. And when I sort of poked around in there, I could see that the people who were commenting in this comment section were very informed and intelligent, and they had a lot of things to say. It was like an actual salon. Yeah, it was exactly. Yeah. It was like meeting the goal of the salon, yeah. the idea of a salon. So I started to hang out in the comment section of Salon Magazine. I didn't initially write for it because I was more interested in this comment thing. Yeah. And in those days, because it was still new and the internet was new and Salon Magazine was new, the editors and the writers were, were fixtures in the comment mm. section because they felt that was important. 
And I remember saying to them, you know, a lot of smart people in these comment sections, you should figure out how to hook up your journalists with the people who really know stuff in the comments. And ever since then, I've always been interested in the way that the internet drives down the cost of participation, allows many more people to participate, and the possible value of that for journalism. Today, right now, where we're sitting, we're also dealing with like the negative side of that, yeah. the dark side of that. Obviously, anytime a new medium comes around, it, it inherits a lot of the old guard. And in this case, that was probably a good thing for the most part because you had these organizations, you know, had, although most of them have failed to do a good job monetizing, but, you know, you've got to establish pictures like the New York Times coming along and at least like bring this, these, this sense of not only like a sense of authority and, and respect, but all of these practices that they've had in place for, for some time. So you're, yeah. you're getting a similar approach to journalism through these old media companies on new media in, in the new media. Right. Well, a positive way of saying old media would be they're the specialists in verification. Yeah. The uh, torch keepers. Or... Yeah, because before they publish it, they verify it. And that turns yeah. out to be like super important. They get caught up in the trap as much as anyone else does. They have their blogs. They do a much better job than a lot of other people are doing for the most part. But they're competing against the same deadlines as everyone else, which is pretty much split second. Yeah, that's part of it. And they're also, you know, it's been said many times, it's a cliche by this point, but in in an era of information abundance, the scarce resource is attention. They're, in a sense, competing not against other sources of news, but against everything else you might do with your time. Mm -hmm. And that's a situation they never expected to be in. When you're being delivered through a platform, Facebook is probably a bad example given what's been happening lately, but the idea of a social media platform as being kind of a great equalizer. You know, I'm following... 500 people in my Twitter feed and in essence they're all being delivered up to me in the same way Mm -hmm. so the New York Times has to make sure that they've got a way to attempt to hook me in Mm -hmm. so that I read them versus a million other news sources yeah another way to say that would be the most famous words ever written about the press are in the United States Constitution Congress shall make no law bridging freedom of the press. Mm-hmm. But the second most famous words ever written about freedom of the press were the lines of A.J. Liebling, the great press critic from the New Yorker in the mid-century, who said, freedom of the press belongs to those who own one. The internet yeah. changed that situation because everybody owns one. That was a real thing. And when I first started publishing online, I started my blog in 2003. I've kept it going pressthink.org since then, I was very impressed by and and sort of enthralled by the way that blogging and the internet gave everyone a printing press. So when does that hopefulness of a young Jay on their internet start to... Um, when, when do you become more critical? When do you become more embittered by what's going on? When exactly did it start to turn? That's a good question. <laughs> you know, I think I didn't quite deal with it until election night of 2016. Wow. Yeah. And that was like a long, dark night of yeah. the intellectual soul. <laughs> that was a difficult night. Yeah. Getting back to this the, this original, this initial interaction with the, the comments section, you know, there's this ideal, again, of it not being ghettoized, of it being essentially on an equal platform. But we have all the tools at our disposal to ignore all of the information that we don't want necessarily. 
Totally. So yeah. I mean, we do a good job of that just in the world generally. We're really good at filtering things out, at compartmentalizing yeah. things. Even more so online, you know, we're, we're able to write people off as sort of being crazy, as being a deep, dark part of the internet. I'm somebody who's done a lot of video online and, and written for sites where we have um, very intense feedback, shall we say, not always positive. And it's easy to sort of write it off as, as you know, that's just people are just angry on the internet or people have been saying this for a decade is, you know, don't read the comments. So we stopped right. reading the comments. Right. So it was easy to write all that off as not actually being a impactful part of society. Yeah, I think you can't do that really, though, because... And we learned that the hard way, right? Yeah. If if you really believe in journalism, if you really care about it, if you yeah. think it's important, if you think the work of being a journalist matters, which I certainly do, I I teach people who want to be journalists, I write about the press, I care about it. The reason it matters is not that you can publish good stuff. The reason it matters is because... If people are informed about the world, they're empowered to do something about it. That If you don't believe that, if you don't think that public exists, if you don't try and engage with it, if you don't respect it, if, you, if, you, if the flame of that idea has gone out inside of you, then being a journalist is, is a pretty cynical way of conducting your life. Mm. So that transaction between people who have information and people who want it is what keeps journalism alive. That's what yeah. makes it important. Another way to put this is the authority of a reporter begins in a very simple human statement. I was there. You weren't. Let me tell you what happened. Right? I was at that demonstration mm. in Charlottesville. I yeah. saw what was going on. You were sitting at home or you were in school or you were busy living your life. Let me tell you what happened. Or I looked at all the documents yep. for that transaction and let me tell you what they say. So that idea that we are concerned with, interested in, we care about, we have a stake in events that we cannot ourselves know about. But part of where the math is really changing, it's on a couple of levels, one of which obviously is when outlets can't pay to send people places, when we're we're in a yeah. lot of ways where these kind of quarterback totally. journalists were, and everyone's working from home now. And the flip side of that is the people who are there and are on the ground are, are documenting it on their own way. And doesn't that change whatever? I, I don't want to use, use the term power dynamic because that seems like maybe you're putting the press on too much of a pedestal, but it, it, it does flip things on its head. Yeah, there's a economic crisis in journalism. There's a business model crisis, and we don't current time know how to solve that. And that's what makes this such a, a perilous moment. So we don't actually know what the future of that transaction is going to be and you can't do journalism unless you have the times and the means to investigate yeah you know uh and since facebook and google and the decline of advertising set in about 10 years ago how do we pay for serious reporting has been an unsolved problem. It's still an unsolved problem today. I think about it every day. I'm working on one solution to it, which is membership in news organizations. Mm -hmm. That's a huge issue. And, and this comes after a very long period where 
the underlying business model for journalism was the same. Is you, you, you published important information, you got an audience, and you sold ads around that activity, and it was sort of stable for a long period of time. Now it's completely unstable. This is a question I've asked a lot of people in, in, in the music industry, for example, is whether that business model is, is heading toward something a little bit more permanent or whether we're going to basically constantly be in flux forever. Or is it going to ebb and flow? Is it going to cycle? I mean, right now it feels like the internet has put pretty much any form of media in a constantly changing state. I don't see any stability coming in the years ahead. I don't think there's going to be a business model to replace the one that the internet broke. I see ahead, at least in the next few years, continuing scramble and ad hoc improvisation to pull together enough money to keep doing what needs to be done. Um, I think the revenue sources for serious journalism will be varied and you'll have to like pull together a number of them to afford to pay journalists. And I think it'll keep changing and, and it'll be disrupted and something will work for a little while and it won't work. And, I don't see any coherence or, or a single model replacing the one that is uh, drifting into the distance. And do things continue to get even more polarized over time? I think we're in a very dark time where polarization and attacks on the press as an institution, the division into information camps that don't necessarily touch yeah. one another – that All last that. aspect isn't it certainly isn't new that's been happening for a while people have been tuning in right. i mean they you know maybe the birth of right-wing talk radio is a pretty good place to start with that that might be the first place where people could really start just tuning into the information they wanted and rush limbaugh's been doing his thing for some time now so that aspect isn't isn't new what is new is just is, is exactly how tailored all that information is, is and given the fact that Either are if you are still a little bit more you know quote unquote traditional and watching television through cable TV, there are so many channels. But if you're a cord cutter, you can really you can go through your day and not be bombarded with any information from a news site that you don't want to read from or listen to. That's been true for a while, but it's true with a vengeance now, and and I think we're we're kind of in the middle of an uncontrolled experiment where we don't know what happens to all the other institutions when people do that with their information diet. I just saw a headline 20 minutes ago that said uh, something, like, and the New York Times said something like, the more educated Republicans are, the less they believe in climate change. Mm. That's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think... Educated in what? Not science. Well, <laughs> I'm just telling you what the headline <laughs> said. This is something I think about every day since the election, but... yeah. Also before that, because I've been written, writing about it since 2005 or 2006, yeah. but the whole idea that there is no common world of fact is extremely disruptive to every idea we have about how democracy can work and, and how a complex society can be governed through consent of the governed. Like we don't actually have any models of how democracy works where there is no idea of a common fact or where verification itself, which is what journalists I think specialize in, is rejected. 
Um, like an- another thing I, I think about almost every day is something I call verification in reverse. So, you know, journalists try to take things that might be true and nail them down with yeah. facts, documents, interviews, data, evidence. But not cherry pick from that information. Well, yes, that. But something even more radical than that is verification in, in reverse, where you take something that's been nailed down and you introduce doubt about it, which creates controversy and reaction and and uh, anger. And then you fuel a political movement with the energy that's released by the denial of an established fact. This, I think, is the political method that brought Trump to power. I mean, his, his birtherism was that. It was taking something that had been nailed down, introducing doubt about it, which creates a lot of energy. And then yeah. he was able to use that energy to boost his candidacy. So that, like, there are aren't any lessons in journalism school about that. Like there's no playbook for what you do in that situation. So we're, that's why I say it's, it's an uncontrolled experiment. It's literally just the introduction of doubt too. It's not, this is a fact. This is how things are. It's just, it's not a counter fact. This might be, yeah. Yeah. It's this, this thing that everyone says is true is not true. Uh, Or even it might not be true. Yeah. It's almost enough. Yeah. The press, the media in the United States has, often been painted as being left-leaning and that probably is true to some degree i think that is often said yeah yes i suspect that that's probably the case for the most part that probably has been the case for the most part i have to stop you right there you have to draw a distinction there yeah i think it is true that most journalists are liberals if we held them down and we were able to ask them questions about their beliefs we'd find out that especially socially they're liberals. They believe mm-hmm. in abortion rights. They believe yeah. in gay rights. They they um, they believe in sort of like letting people do their own thing. They're not particularly religious. They're more secular people. Um, so all, for all on all these ways, science. yeah, they believe in science. All these ways, they're liberal. However, the press as an institution is not necessarily liberal. For one thing, it's owned by Republicans. Sure. It's owned by capitalists. But also, uh, journalists are kind of like specialists in doubt. They love to think of themselves as contrarians. They are against people who uh, spout a party line. They um, There's nothing more entertaining to them than pulling the rug out of the or 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 uh, or sinking the career of somebody, whether they're Republican yeah. or Democrat. So all these ways in which in which the profession or the or the uh, the business of media is not necessarily liberal, even though yeah, most reporters are probably liberal, but they think of themselves as skeptics. And if they were able to bring down a Democratic president, they would love that. At the very least, it's easy to see why, if you're a Republican voter, how that's a troubling concept. Sure. And again, this is something that the press has been painted as being left-leaning for a really long time. Often politicians have said that in the past, but how is this different? Because it's definitely well, a lot is of different. ways it's different. For example, um, Nixon hated the press. Yeah, and we know that because of we know things that he said. Yes, he recorded all of his conversations. Yeah, yes. right. Um, but almost all of those things were said in private. Trump broadcasting not only his disgust or hatred with the press, but trying to persuade his supporters that these people are the enemy of the people and and fake news. That's very different than Mm -hmm. Nixon complaining 
to his cronies that the Washington Post is against him. Um, so that's part of the problem. When Spiro Agnew, his vice president, began essentially the the, the right wing's media critique with his speeches in 1969 and 1970 complaining about bias in the media, what he was complaining about was the interpretation that pundits on television gave to Nixon's speeches after Nixon delivered mm-hmm. them. That is miles and worlds away from saying that journalists fabricate their stories and that they uh, they just make stuff up and that they are actually the enemies of democracy. Yeah. Right. So there's that. And then there's the fact that in addition to um, uh, a, an organized campaign to discredit the mainstream press, which I want to say more about in a second, which is led by the president of the United States, you have these other tendencies within the conservative coalition of denying evidence and doubting things like climate change and and this this sort of rejection of elites and and people who know stuff which is not just journalists it's like people in the state department who are professional diplomats scientists in nasa other people who know what they're talking people on the ground in in iraq in 2002 and 2003 who actually knew what was going on there there's something gone wrong in the conservative coalition in the republican party where and where evidence, factuality, facts on the ground have to be subordinated to another. And that's that's like I don't understand that. I don't know how that started. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. I don't think people who study politics understand it very well. It's not just in the U.S. This is now like an, a problem that we're seeing in Europe and and in other Western democracies. So I don't think we know a lot about that. But it's certainly related to this put down of the press. And and so the whole idea that there is a, a check on power that comes from saying, wait a minute, this is what you're claiming, but this is a reality. Like that idea is also wearing away. Yeah. And I, when I say a campaign to discredit the American press, what I mean is at the top, you have the president of the United States who is constantly telling his base, that not only should you not trust these people, but they are corrupt and they make up their stories, which is an extreme claim. At the base or the bottom of the pyramid, you have an army of online trolls and activists who are regularly attacking people online. I'm sure you experience it. I experience it. Who are um, constantly engaged in in not just refuting what you say, but but, uh, attacking who you are and and claiming that you're making stuff up. And then between the two, between the top of the pyramid and the base, you have mediating institutions like Rush Limbaugh and Daily Caller and Fox News and Matt Drudge uh, who connect the top to the bottom. So that's a very effective structure yeah. and it's working. It's working so well that 25 to 35% of the electorate now is kind of broken off from the rest of the information system and exists in a loop of its own where Trump and Trump supporters like Kennedy are the only source of information about Trump. And the whole idea of an independent source of information that's not aligned with power 
has kind of like disappeared from that. So before they get to the their work in the in the morning, the journalists in the media centers of New York and Washington, before they even log on, a third of their public is gone. That's an extreme situation. It's also just impossible to have a nuanced conversation with somebody who doesn't want to hear or care about nuanced. I, I mean, when it you sounds like you've tried it. Well, you mentioned the the trolls and 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 this was. Again, something that for me only really dawned on me after Trump was elected was the – it was crazy to start connecting the dots between Gamergate yeah, and the rise of Trump. But those two things right. are very, very related. Totally. Even to a person where, you know, you talk about somebody like Milo or, or a lot of people in the Absolutely. Breitbart movement and they actually – they came out of that and and, and you can't – you can't have a rational conversation with a shit poster. That's the whole point of shit posting. It's almost uh, it, it's anarchy on the base level. It's amazing to me that internet trolls and shit posters, as you put it, that's your term. Well, their term too. Yeah, I didn't, uh, I didn't copyright that. Yeah, they are in a sense at the center of national politics. Yeah. It's an incredible development. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, in it a is. way, maybe it's an exciting time to be a media journalist or media critic. I, I suppose I have an exciting day. Usually, yeah. I yeah. mean, it's it's that it's that question of that every comedian got asked prior to the election, or are you going to have more material? Or are you going to be happier if Trump gets elected? That was easy to answer, but yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of material, and I spend almost all day trying to try to understand it. But I'll, in another way, it's crisis because um, the day after the election. You know, I, I make my living with with my mind, like my ideas uh, and my descriptions of the world. I mean, that that's all that a writer has, really. Uh, we don't have our looks, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. We're not glamorous. <laughs> and after that election, I had to face the fact that my descriptions of the world were not very good. They had missed something like really important yeah i had to go back and figure out where i had gone wrong norman mailer who i used to used to love as a writer back when i was just learning to be a writer maybe not as a person necessarily yeah not as a great person at all um but he said something always stuck with me he said um an alcoholic is trying to get back to the point in his life where it took a wrong turn yeah that's why he drinks and I remember that line on uh, November 9th or whatever the day after the election was because I, I had – I felt like I have to go back and figure out where I took some sort of wrong turn because I used to believe in progress. Yeah. Like we're getting smarter. We're getting more liberal. We're getting kind of like more open-minded. We're getting more tolerant. Um, we're widening the circle. We're including more people in we society. We had a black president for eight yeah, years. Yeah, we had a black president. Exactly. And things are – with ups and downs and reversals, sure. we're getting we're getting there. We're getting better. And like after the election, I didn't feel that way anymore. I, I think actually we're going backwards yeah. in many ways, uh, including in the rise of an informed public. We're going backwards. We're going we're going towards verification in reverse. We're going back to to belief triumphing over fact. To get and back to why? the alcoholic <laughs> you know? analogy, I mean, is is it a situation where we have to, as they say in AA, hit bottom? Yeah, maybe. I mean, right now, that's the only thing 
that I think is going to change this. I don't, I don't see things are going to have to get really yeah, bad for a lot. Things of people. are going to have to get worse. That's right yeah. now. That's what it looks like. Yeah. Did your job change at all after the election? Um, well, my teaching job didn't change except yeah. that I had to try and explain myself to my students, which was very hard. So that's good. I mean, I'm very privileged character. I have a really good job. It's very stable. Yeah. It's, um, I'm, you know, extremely fortunate to to be in a major university that respects what I do. So that didn't change. Um, but I felt like my writing life changed because, again, I had to sort of figure out where I'd gone wrong. And I also had to find some way of believing in journalism, again, that I could support. So that's that's one reason that I'm aligned with this Dutch site, the uh, the correspondent, mm-hmm. which is expanding to the United States. And they have rebuilt the model for how you support journalism in a way that I find very exciting, very relevant to the cultural moment. Um, so they're uh, um, and 90% funded by their members who give money to support the site. They have 65,000 members who pay about 60 euros a year. They have 21 full-time correspondents, about 25 other people who work for the organization. No ads, no clickbait, no targeting, no tracking, none of the excesses of internet publishing. Um, And the more I looked at them, I knew about them for a while, but the more I examined what they were doing, the more I concluded that they had optimize their entire operation for trust, for user trust. And after the election, I felt we need to do something like that. We need to like go back and rebuild media on a stronger base. And so I am working with them to help them expand to the United States because I think in a, in a way they've started over uh, and that's what it's going to take to pull journalism out of this hole that it's in. In addition, though, to that reexamination that you have to do, you know, working backwards and going over what actually happened and where you went wrong, is there a crisis of of relativity and a concern that as things are becoming more polarized, that you're staying on your own pole? I mean, you know, you're teaching at NYU, you know, you're teaching in the university. Oh yeah, to, sure. You know, I assume like. Uh, largely probably a lot of like-minded people when you're you're on twitter you're the people who are retweeting your stuff the people who are you actually reaching are people who generally are like-minded yes are you concerned that as things split further and further apart that you're just going to continue to be preaching to the choir i'm very concerned about it but i don't know what to do about it because i am equally concerned with some of the cheap solutions people find to that problem such as such as he said, she said journalism, such as uh, breezy, both sides do it, um, such as false equivalence. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I've been a big critic of those things for a long time be- before they were common knowledge. Yeah. Um, I wrote my first piece on he said, she said journalism in 2009. I'm unable to like fall into these like easy, breezy, uh, formalistic sort of solutions where you kind of assume, well, both sides have it wrong. They're equally partisan. Maybe if we stay in the middle, we'll be fine. I don't believe any of that. But I also recognize what you just said, which is that increasingly 
um, the only people I can communicate with are the people who already agree with me. You can try to have conversations with people who exist on another planet. It's a long way from one planet to another. That's what I meant when I spoke earlier about a common world fact. When there is no common world of fact, debate is an illusion. You can try to have a debate and you can sort of simulate it. You can argue, right? You can have a back and forth. But if there's no common world of fact, then it's actually an illusion. There is no possibility for debate. So I think there are political forces in the United States who want there to be no common world of fact. That is their project. That is their political project. And they are succeeding. And in the degree that they succeed, it's very difficult, almost impossible, to have that conversation. So I don't know what to do about that. I'm I'm aware that, yeah, the people who follow me already agree with me. People who are cheering me on are the people who, in a sense, don't need to be persuaded. But I don't know what to do about that. I, I, had, I had an experience a, a few months ago where I, I won't call anybody out, but I had a I wouldn't even call it a debate, but I had a conversation with a relative about Confederate monuments. Mm-hmm. And I knew what side this person was on, and, and I, I asked them when they thought they went up. And they told me, well, probably right after the Civil War. And I said, well, as a matter of fact... It's actually later than that. Yeah, as yeah. a matter of fact, no, during you know these two yeah. very distinct time periods. I think that was enough to really bring this person around. Now, now I'm not dealing with somebody who's, you know, oh, really? really? Oh. Yeah, I don't not, have that experience. You haven't had that experience? No. Well, that's what I was going to ask if if you have if there have been any moments for you that have been hopeful. No. <laughs> you really I, I see you put your thinking face on for this one. Um no. And I, and I no. 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 I I think it's getting darker, it's getting harder. I I I am heartened that there are people in the conservative movement who call themselves conservative, who recognize that something went awry in their movement. Like, let's say, a Charlie Sykes. That would be one example of somebody who, who, um, who, who feels that way. Steve Schmidt, who you see on MSNBC, would be another... David Frum would be another. Mm-hmm. They're Republicans. Yeah. They they at one time called themselves conservatives. And so there's 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 hope I suppose in that, but those but those people are despised by the Trump forces. I mean they're they're considered to be not just traitors, but they're considered to be left, which is crazy because yeah. they're not even close to I have family members who are Fox News fans who literally watch Fox News all day. When I say literally, I mean it is literally on in the house all day. I don't talk to poli- about politics with them because yeah. I can't. So I I don't know. I think it's, I think it's a lot worse than a lot of people say. And like listening to both sides, trying to find like the middle. He said, she said. Both sides do it. None of those things help and they actually make the situation worse so the takeaway is is that as bad as you think things are they're probably actually worse yeah yeah i think i think this is is, like i said i I think it's sort of like an uncontrolled experiment where we yeah we don't know if consent of the governed can survive a world in which there is no 
common basis in fact. I don't know anyone who's tried to, any country that's tried to do that. And I don't know anyone who, who kind of like has wrapped his or her mind around that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard not to look at somebody like Jeff Flake and just kind of completely get it, you know, completely understand why he, why he just totally bailed. Yeah. I think it's really hard to be a politician, but it's hard to certainly, it's hard to be a Republican politician. But so, an, another way to look at this is, is, is we have to ask ourselves what in our tradition going back way before any of this started, can we call on to make it through? What can we find in the American tradition that will help us in this situation? Is there any kind of analog? Well, we survived the Civil War. Yeah. (laughs) We had Tom Paine, you know. We have persisted uh, as as the greatest democracy in the world for, for more than 200 years. So I think we're going to have to look like backward as much as we can, because if we look ahead, we just see something darker than yeah. what you have now. Is there a through line or a takeaway from those victories? No, except that America has reinvented itself yeah. many times before. And we're going to have to do that again. It's probably a lesson in mindfulness and not taking things for granted at the same time too. I mean, it, it only dawned on me when the election was over the horizon, how much we had taken the last eight years for granted. Yeah. When Obama was elected, people, very serious journalists were having very serious conversations about whether racism was over. Yeah. Yeah. That was silly. (laughs) It, It reinforces for me that, Something that's hard to understand when you're younger, but it's much clearer to me now. I'm 61. We walk around and we, and we we really are in the dark about our own time. Yeah, we, we think we know the time in which we live, yeah. but most of the time we're like stumbling around. Like when you wake up at three in the morning and you're, there's no lights in your house and you're trying to like find your way to the bathroom. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like that. It's like we're. We're in the dark much more than we think we are. We don't see what's coming ahead. And the events of the last year uh, just reinforce that. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that when something like this happens, we really look for one very – I mean we're we're a, a narrative people or a narrative culture. We look for one storyline that can really explain what happened. And the fact of the matter is that there is this – almost once in a lifetime confluence of things that all occurred at the same time. It was sort of really was death by a million cuts. Yeah. I don't think we're even close to understanding how yeah. it happened. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, and I think people in my business, the, the academic world where, you know, our, our, our gig is understanding society. And I don't think we've done a good enough job in, in trying to understand why are these things happening now and why are they happening internationally um, how did the world of common fact slip away from us, not just in the United States or with some specific issue like climate change, but in a broader pattern? I don't think we know anything about that. And, and it's disturbing because we're supposed to be 
like good understanding these things and we're not one of your initial ambitions was to be a journalist and things just didn't quite work out Correct. do you ever regret that you weren't able to pursue that line of things and to affect change in that way versus what you're doing now no i feel like really lucky yeah like i a very i have a very quirky job and you're where you should be and i where i am where i should be for me it's really important to be able to write in and speak in the vernacular mm. and i'm very fortunate in that i'm an academic with a phd but i get to do that i i don't have to talk in a specialized language that only other academics can. So the university doesn't have the same or similar constraints as you would have working for a publication? No, what I mean is because I'm a professor, but I'm a professor of journalism mm -hmm. as opposed to a biologist or an, a literary critic, I could speak in the same language that people greet when they open the New York Times mm. or when they log on to the Washington Post. And so I can talk to journalists, but I can also talk to people who care about politics, people who are upset about the media. I can talk to students. I can talk to elected officials, some of whom follow me on Twitter, right? And so I can I can speak in a public language to the public, and I have the protections of the university in doing that. That's a very privileged place to have in the American public sphere. That is the hopefulness in this, is is that same tool that has messed things up in so many ways is the one that lets you amplify your voice and uh, gives you the platform to talk to all of these different people. Yeah, I've benefited from the decontrol of public discourse uh, and from the internet hugely. And because before the internet, I had to pass all of my ideas about journalism through the gate of journalists. Like, I had to ask the LA Times, would you print my op-ed? Yeah. And, Helly, comely journalism view. Don't you think this would be a good idea for an article? And when I was in that situation where they were the gatekeepers and I was talking about the gatekeepers, I was very restricted in what I could say. And that's why when I first heard about blogging, I was like super excited. I learned about blogging from an undergraduate at NYU in 2002 who had a blog. And he said, Professor Rosen, do you know about blogging? And I said, blogging, what's that? He was a conservative mm. at NYU who had a blog talking about politics. Yeah. And you can imagine how for somebody at NYU who had conservative ideas, yeah. this was an incredible yeah, yeah, yeah. thing, right? Yeah. So he's telling me about this thing, the blogosphere, and I didn't know anything about it. And I said, well, like, how many readers are there of such things? He says, well, if you get a link from a big blog, you can have a lot of readers. I said, how many is a lot? He says, well, 5,000, 10,000. I said, wow. And the more he told me about it, the more interested I got. And he gave me some links to check out, one of which was instapundit.com, mm -hmm. which was a big blog at that time. Yeah. And the more I thought about what this undergraduate student told me, the more excited I got. And when I got back to my office, I was practically like running up to my desk to look at these links because the idea of being able to publish anything you wanted on your own was incredibly exciting to me. So without blogging, without social media, uh, I wouldn't really have the voice that I have. And so I feel like very very lucky to have those tools but now i have to deal with the fact that those same things are 
not just undermining democracy, but as I said earlier, eroding the whole idea of a common world of fact. And that's very scary because I get into arguments all the time online where if I was honest, I would just say, look, we live on different planets and there's no way we can talk. That's depressing. So in 2017, when you assess the landscape, is the internet a net positive for humanity? I think it is <laughs> because it widens the circle of participation. And I think in the end, that is a good thing. But we have to redeem its promise. And right now, we're not doing that. There you go, that's Jay Rosen. He is a professor of journalism at NYU. He's one of those people that I would see popping into my Twitter feed fairly frequently. And then as Trump was getting closer and closer and finally elected to the presidency, everybody was retweeting him. He has some very fascinating insights, and I'm glad that we had the opportunity to sit down and talk through what was going on. This conversation was actually recorded a couple of months ago, and it's kind of crazy to think about how much things have changed in the intervening period. Obviously, that was uh, well in advance of the fake news awards and all the other things that are going on, but not that much has changed with regards to the relationship between the president and the press. And it was a helpful, but perhaps not a very hopeful conversation. It sounds like uh, Jay's in agreement with me with regards to the fact that it's probably going to get quite a bit worse before things get better anyway you can follow jay over on twitter it's jrosen underscore nyu thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that thanks to you guys as always for listening to the program there are a number of ways to support us if you like the show you can uh, send us a little bit of money on patreon rate us on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts like us over on Facebook. If you've got any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get over your IYL-related information. And uh, I think that's about it for this week. So uh, stick around because we'll be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL.